0: And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge special program today. We have the inside story of what happened in the negotiations between China and Canada on the release of the two Michaels. And we get the story from the man who led the Canadian sides team. That's coming right up. Mm-hmm. There, Peter Mansbridge here. Dominic Barton. Does that name ring a bell for you? Well, if it doesn't, it probably should. Dominic Barton is an extremely well-known Canadian, both in diplomatic circles and in business circles internationally, around the world. He's extremely well-known. Right now, he's the chair of the global mining firm Rio Tinto. But in his past, two particular things of interest. One, ambassador for Canada to China during the period of the two Michaels being held in a Chinese prison. That's one. Two, he's the former global managing partner of the McKinsey Group, the consulting firm, the huge international consulting firm that has been at the center of some controversy, and we'll get into that a little later, and his particular role in it, but also consulting firms in general Around the world, consulting firms have expanded their business considerably. And that includes here in Canada, where they consult for private firms, but also for government. And the opposition has been raising questions in Ottawa about why have consulting fees risen so dramatically? And what does Dominic Barton have to do with this story? And is he too friendly with the Liberals? Is that why the Liberals give him so much work? Those are questions the opposition wants answered. We'll ask Dominic Barton, if a committee gets going in Ottawa, will he agree to come and testify in front of it? You'll hear his answer in this interview. But first of all, we're going to start with our discussions about China, because Dominic Barton has an interesting history on China. He's advocated in the past for closer ties with China, both on the part of businesses and governments. Has that changed as a result of what he went through during his time as ambassador in China? Let's find out. Enough of the preamble. Let's get to the discussion. Here we go. Our conversation with Dominic Barton. So... I guess the first time or the last time we actually met and talked was in Halifax about 10 years ago uh, when we were both guests at a conference um, that was encouraging the four Atlantic provinces uh, to look uh, beyond their own borders in terms of potential markets. And you were encouraging them to look at, at Asia, specifically at China. And I'm wondering, thinking back to that time, you know, a decade ago, would you still say the same kind of things you said then today?
1: I think some aspects would be different because clearly the world has changed. But in terms of the fundamental opportunity for Canada in Asia or the Indo-Pacific writ large, I, I feel even more passionate about that. And, um, and I think we've seen that if you look at some of the, you know, what's happened on the lobster front with, uh, with Nova Scotia, uh, it, not only in China, but also in other parts of Southeast Asia and so forth. Um, and so, you know, this is a a part of the world that is becoming now the dominant economic weighting, and and for our prosperity, I think we have to be linked to it. I think that the the kind of the I wouldn't say blind, but kind of broad, like there's lots of opportunities everywhere. I would I would sort of be more refined about that. Um, you know, I think. You know, we're not going to be investing in satellites or doing partnerships in um, maybe parts of the aviation business. You know what I mean on the on the technical side, um, but on on some other aspects, I would I would go even harder um, again on the ag agricultural side. And again, I I look at it as a regional opportunity. I think China is fundamental to it, um, given it's the biggest trading partner with every single one of those countries in Asia, right? The supply chains are linked. Um, so that to me, it's the, the opportunity high. I would refine, I'd be a little more refined about what are the areas to work in and who you work with. And, and I think I would also be a little more sophisticated in terms of thinking about, for example, within China, where within China, China's not one glob, if you will. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a whole series of different cities with different you know um, tastes approaches opportunities. It's within the system, uh, but there are differences on that front. And I think in Canada we've focused too much more broadly, or in a or in the in the of classic Beijing Shanghai uh, uh, Guangzhou area. And there's many other areas to to focus in. So I, I don't know if that.
0: Well, let, let me dig not. down just a little bit on that because uh, you use the word refined, and I'm I, I'm wondering is that another way of saying it? we got to be a little wary in certain areas? We got to be more guarded in certain yeah, areas I when think, dealing with China.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, you know the I think if you if you go back even 20 years ago, our view of what China was was radically different about where it is. I think we had views that they were going to as they as they became part of the global economic system they would become more like us um, and i was definitely in that camp of the, you know that this is a trade and integration will lead to other changes and you know i think in in 2012 to get you know then moving into 2015 that it, it it became quite different right and i think the notion of when i say refined it's i was thinking more about the trade aspect i think if you think wary yes i think we have to be we have to protect um our own security uh in terms of where where we are i think that's much more uh significant i think that there are uh you know there are areas where we may have to be much more aggressive about defending our values um and where things are because of how china has changed um on that front and that's where i think this view of of you know it's a you need a a multi uh, pronged approach to dealing with china i don't you know china in my view i've said this before in in some of the committee sessions in parliament it's both china's good and bad it's not it's but they're going to be in our grill and so we have to have a more sophisticated approach of dealing with it we have we cooperate where it makes sense we have comp where we have common interests we challenge where we differ, and those can be on human rights or views about uh, international trade or whatever the particular issue is. Um, we compete, um, and and so it's a it's a broader approach than how are we just going to trade with with China.
0: Um- You've had obviously a lot of experience dealing with the, uh, the Asian area and China and specifically, and from both the public sector and the private sector. Um, your time as ambassador in China uh, for Canada, what did the whole Two Michaels experience teach you about this relationship and whether that adds to the sort of the unease or the wariness uh, in terms of yeah. uh, of how to deal
1: yeah it's a uh, it, it, i mean i don't know what to where, where to begin on that peter right because mm-hmm. it's a there was a, a lot of things happening i mean i i i clearly saw some of the darkest parts of of a system uh for personally um what do you mean, uh, i what learned do you mean a lot by, about what do you mean by that well by the, having our 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 the, the the two michaels where they were held you know the it was the very difficult circumstances that in which they were um living um how they communicated what was happening with the families um we saw it with the trade If you recall we've had you know we had uh, you know a chunk of our agricultural trade shut down and what that meant to people because i met the entrepreneurs that were selling that product and what it was doing to their business, to not have that done, to, to sort of have a switch off of, of that. And then the, and then the negotiation, right. Of in, in, dealing with China, because it's a, it's different. This wasn't business, right. This is, this is geopolitical. And um, that, that was a, a massive learning experience. On the other hand, there were a lot of things I'd learned about China in terms of, of relationships and getting things done and being able to influence that were i could draw on or or use so i think that it you know what what uh, you know in, in in my business work you know there was never the case of you know someone is going to die because because of the work we do you know th- th- this is i'm not suggesting people are going to die but it was it was extremely serious and Personal, and you knew the people, and uh, when you're dealing between two countries, two countries that are upset at each other, and a quite a powerful China that is upset, there were, you know, there were meetings that were very unpleasant. let's just put it that extremely unpleasant.
0: Can you you take Um, us inside on that? Like, how was it unpleasant? How was a meeting unpleasant?
1: um, If you know. uh, I'm just trying to think about where to start because Peter, I don't want to. There's some stuff that's, you know, best not go. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to be cryptic cryptic about this, but, but me, would you if, be so arguing example, across the me,
0: table? Would you be like yelling at each yeah, other? Or, I mean,
1: yeah, no, it's not yelling. It's just uh, very. It's quiet and clear. So you, you know, first of all, you know, you're sitting across the table. And each of you has a view about a particular matter, right? Like we, and um, there would be. You know, my first meetings—that was the the big wake-up call. It was, you know, uh, the, the the China was extraordinarily angry at, at Canada, and some of the language that was used. It was kind of you are, you know. I remember the one of the first meetings I had uh, in in Beijing, and the meeting started, and I didn't know about the diplomatic process, which is you have to listen to the other person complete what they're doing. But they had a document about an inch and a half thick of speaking notes, right? And so they started and started off saying, uh, you are a lapdog of the United States. That's pretty confronting, you know, you are a lapdog of the United States, you know, what can be done, but you don't have the fortitude to do the right thing. Um, and let me explain to you how your system works. It works like this and that, and you don't understand your own system. And that's pathetic. Uh, that's pretty good. And so that, that I was getting uh, And and it, part of this is diplomacy where they were angry. They were trying to send a message to me to send a message, if, if you will. But for someone in my background, I, you know, and I we'll, will come back to this later on McKinsey, I was always taught, you don't, we tell truth to power. And if you, you never if if some if someone does something you don't feel is right, you must speak out. So I did at one point. I got quite upset about this lapdog uh, commentary. And I said, we're not lapdogs at all. We have our own view of how we do things. I talked about Cuba. I went, and what I did was I interrupted this guy, which was not the thing. So he went apoplectic and went back to the beginning, over spoke me, and then went back to the beginning of the document and started over again. Um. And so it was. It was. Quite, it wasn't yelling. It wasn't. It, but it was just direct. You, you're a lapdog, and and that was. You know, it kind of went on. And we we had that for about an hour. And then I asked for a tea break because I thought this is clearly, some, what's going on here. And we went. We went back. But there were there are just other occasions when you know when countries are mad at each other. As the ambassador, you are conveying a message, and you will receive a message. Um, and there were times, you know, we, we will try and, you know, they, if they ever perceived at, at our times but that we were threatening on things, it would be like, if you, you let me explain to you what happens if you think you're going to get us to do X because of Y, let me tell you what we'll do to you, not not personally, but to people that you're, you, you, you know, you're dealing with and, and, and so forth. And that's just something that's, you know, quite, it's rough. Uh, it can be rough. And and we were, our country, you remember, our, our, our countries were not speaking to each other. There was no conversations that were going on. So just, there was a lot of pent-up anger that had to be released. And your job as the ambassador is you, you are the interface, if you will. And that doesn't mean that I didn't, and we don't also push back. But that's not... Um, you know that's not the norm in my world uh, if you will. Of course you can get upset about things and do it but there when it's getting you have countries that are angry with each other, there's then a very precise focal point to send messages and it's it's this it was a quiet, clear tough and so we also had to you know you, you we, we have to to do that and there's a formality to it.
0: Um, was it clear from the beginning that it was all about the Huawei executive who uh, Canada was holding in Vancouver?
1: That that was the core essence of the of it. Uh, that you know that, and I think it was the if you remember, November of 2018 was kind of peak relationship. You know, the number of ministerial meetings that were uh, going on uh, between Canada and uh and china it was it was kind of a golden period it was a you know and, and it, it fell from such a height if you will it was the vertical drop that was the most i think dramatic part of it and and i think there was a sense of not okay there's yes Madam mong has been arrested but it's kind of how could you do this i'm talking from the chinese how could you do this to, you know we have this relation how how could this happen how how did you how could you not know that this would upset us. Do you know what I mean? I'm just speaking right. from their end. And for us, it's kind of, wow, well, you know, we have this, you know, we've been talking about a free trade agreement, um, if you recall. And you know, even, you know, the Bill Morneau was going to be doing, you know, not, not only sort of doing a budget release in New York and Toronto and Montreal, but Shanghai, right? It was that kind of a, you know, we. that's where we, so this drop and kind of a it's almost like people have known each other well. This 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 breakdown, and that's where I think there was just there was a lot of emotion and and anger around, that. and there'd be no communication for a long time, right? That you know, when because I was there in September, um, and and the communications really, I think it was sort of in March, and you know, just completely were we're not there. We didn't have ambassadors in either country, so I think there was a there was also that kind of pent up anger the drop clearly the madame among thing was the, the the core of it we we were also upset too um so it was a and I it was kind of the sense always of how could you guys you Canada, do this when we've had this you know it's a 50-year relationship you gave us wheat you took you know you you helped us when we were on our knees you know what i mean this is a can this is the kind of canada we have our students start, or go to your universities because we respect how you, you know what I mean? It's this, how could you do this? So there was a, that was part of, that was another part of the backdrop that had to be dealt with in this process.
0: Do you, did you think at that time that they were, aside from everything else that was going on, that they were uh, trying to involve themselves on the Canadian political scene, that they were trying to interfere? In the Canadian election process,
1: I I never had that sort of uh, discuss. You know, I didn't. We didn't get that sense or dis, or discussion. I know that there's been um, conversations and discussions about that now, but that wasn't uh, that wasn't it. I mean, we were very much focused on our bilateral problem, which would, meant there was no communication and where were we where were we going to move? It hadn't. That wasn't uh, that that wasn't on the agenda. You know we hadn't picked up anything on that front
0: I want to try and uh, use your expertise to help me understand something that happened at the APEC conference and I'm I'm assuming you've seen the videotape or you've heard about this situation yeah. of the, the 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 meeting if you want to call it that or the confrontation as some people describe it as between President Xi and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, the video and that's why I'd, li- I'd like your eyes, uh, if you've seen it and read about it, what how you interpret what happened in that moment. Because clearly it seemed to us that President Xi was not happy. He was upset and he was making his feelings clear. Um, but when you look at it, what was happening in that moment and why was it happening?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I've given what I've told you before about some of the the discussions i've had or many where they were quite you know i wasn't as i, I wasn't shocked uh, by that i think it was i think it's exactly as what you said president Xi was upset and he was telling the prime minister directly or what how he felt um and, and and where it is and they and i think what was unique about it is people actually got to see president Xi with some emotion um having a you know an unscripted um, discussion because we, we, he, he's very clinical, right? Normal. We don't see, we see him standing at podiums or reading speeches. This was kind of freestyle president Xi.
0: Um, and so I think
1: that's what was interesting. Yeah.
0: Some people think he was playing for the cameras
1: in that moment. He, 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 he might've been, I don't, the way I looked at it was this this was a, you know, it was a him expressing, as you said, frustration. I think he assumes that um, a conversation they had. I don't, I don't know the background to that and, and where it was, and he wanted to um, say it. I, I don't think my sense too, is our it, the Canadian interpreter wasn't there, so it was being done with the Chinese interpreter, which is all you know. That's a it just it it, it, it makes it less comfortable because you like to have your own interpreter. So I think that also puts the Prime Minister in a tough place. Um, but I saw it as a as a transaction. That's how I. I saw it. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of you know of, a, of sending a message of, of where things were. I think what the prime minister said back was good. Just about he had to you know, the, that was on, you know, he is having to react um, to to what's there. But I think it, in a sense, messages were delivered. Uh, that's part of what 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 happens, whether it was a setup or no, I, I just don't. I don't I, I think the I think I think what was most interesting about that episode was being able to see a glimpse of President Xi and when he's, uh, you know, I, I don't think he could script. I think that was him talking where he how he was feeling. You, you could hear. I did watch the tape. You could hear the you, you could hear the pitch <laughs> change. Um. So but I, again, I think this is a thing where we we'll talk later about it. I, I think it's important that leaders can be able to talk with each other to be able to even if they. Have fundamental disagreements with each other. and so i'm I'm more for the I, you know that we saw that. i I you know I think that having conversations, having t- and I've been in some where I've seen him with other people delivering messages to him, other government. Uh, leaders. So he's, you know, that he's received that himself and, and where it is. So I don't think it was that I think for us, it was un- maybe looking as observers unusual. I didn't try. I saw it more as a transaction. He's, and yeah. what I was most interested in was the just seeing the president, you know, right. t- speaking, uh, you know, from from how he felt.
0: Um, he, he seemed to be placing conditions, or, or, or expressing conditions to the prime minister, that if you want this relationship to carry forward, you're going to have to meet some of these conditions. In terms of what they talked about, what they talked about in public, what they talked about in private, is, is that is there anything abnormal about that?
1: I don't. No, I, I I didn't treat. I mean, I I think it was he was upset about something. He wanted to give direct feedback. I, th- I think that there's actually a genuine desire to have conversation, you know, to to, to want to be able to speak. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's being clear about whether this conversation is a, you know, from his point of view, he was not, he, he, he felt maybe that that wasn't, he, he, he had a different understanding of, of where that was. But I didn't see that as a, I wouldn't read so a big deal into this thing to sort of say the Canadian-China relationship is all of a sudden here or there because of it. I think it was a communication um, with messages. I think the prime minister delivered a clear message a clear message back. Um, and and I think that that, that doesn't mean there, there can't be conversations. I think there can. Um, but I think it was just an expression of frustration. Um, and I think the prime minister was probably surprised, like, this is surprising. I'm not expecting that. Do you know what I mean? That's a, so, but I, so I wouldn't read, I think there's too many things we can read into a short conversation. There's many conversations that are occurring all the time um, between different parties on, on that side.
0: They, they both may have got what they wanted out of it.
1: Yeah. In fact, you know, yeah. from a PR standpoint, the
0: PR yeah. standpoint, they both I, may have declared yeah. victory yeah. on that one. Here's my last question about, about China. Uh, and it's once again about President Xi, and it's a, and it's about what you went through on the on the case involving the two Michaels. Is there any doubt in your mind that the final decision that China made about releasing those two men uh, didn't go straight to the top? That it was right at the top. That the president would have had to sign off on that.
1: Uh, I do. I think it's. Uh, I think. You know one of the challenges in in China is it's a very opaque system, right? And so being understanding how decisions get made is one of the most important things to be able to do if you're negotiating and and it's uh, too often the case that people find out they may be negotiating with the wrong people and that, and that's up to the to us, the interlocutor to figure that out. I don't think it's being hidden. It's just we have to figure that out. but it's very important to do that. but I, I think this was a uh, very fundamental issue between our two countries and the United States as well, right? You've got the United States was also in, involved in this, and you know the, there had been many communications about this situation uh, amongst the three leaders. You know, Canada. You know, Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, Prime, uh, President Trump, President Biden, and President Xi. And often when President Biden and President Trump met President Biden would raise this case, so it was it was number one raised regularly at the top of the house. So this was not kind of like sorting things out. It was it was it was raised regularly. Um, so he he's hundred percent aware of obviously what, what's happening, and I think it's one of these decisions where you know there's a lot at stake um, in terms of how this is all done um and especially when you have three countries involved that's that's what you know three countries in a company uh so i i that's my personal view i do think it you know i'm not suggesting he was orchestrating it or dry you know but i think it had to have he had to he would have to be comfortable with it just like by the way our prime minister he had to be comfortable he would you know he we didn't just go off and do this and come up with it and say here's where we're moving and and, uh, and I think. The U.S. case was a little more complicated because you had different departments that were involved in this. Um, But for sure, uh, you know, with with President Trump uh, and then with with President Biden, there was a desire to be able to get this done. Um, and, and, And as I said, I've said this in other conversations, there were red lines. Everyone had red lines. Prime Minister Trudeau had very Significant red lines about what I could do and could not do. Uh, President Xi had red lines. The uh, Huawei had red lines, and President Trump and President Biden had red. You know what I mean in terms of, and so that was that's why I think it was at that at that level, particularly because it involved three countries. You know, there's there have been other cases like this: Japan, China. Um, you know, you know the uh, Russia, China, on and but in this case we had three countries, and I think that therefore it makes it more, even more higher stakes.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, change your topics. But uh, first of all, this. Welcome back. You're uh, listening to The Bridge. Today's uh, special episode, a conversation with Dominic Barton, uh, who is in London for this uh, conversation. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Um, Okay, change of topic from China to to something that you obviously know well, the inner workings of uh, the company you used to basically run, which was the McKinsey Consultants. Um, It has been in the news for some time now on a lot of different fronts, but also on the Canadian front. And there have been demands from uh, uh, the opposition uh, parties in Canada, in the House of Commons, uh, that there be a special committee to look into the relationship uh, between McKinsey and the Canadian government, between consultants and the Canadian government. And what's happening on that front and whether or not consultants are somehow replacing bureaucrats and what is this doing to the system of government? Um, Let me start with one of the main charges that the opposition is making, is that there's some kind of special relationship uh, between McKinsey and uh, the Liberal government. And they use this as, uh, as evidence of that, that the consulting fees from McKinsey... Have gone up astronomically since the Harper years. Um, nobody seems to be disputing that. Is that the case? And if it is the case, why was it the case, or why? Yeah, is well, it B- the case? Peter,
1: I think first, first of all, I think that you know the idea that there's a some sort of a cozy relationship whereby then McKinsey, you know, because they know the prime minister and they know the Liberal government, they therefore get. Consulting fees is just a complete crock. It's a crock right? because, and I think the McKinsey statement said it very well. All those contracts that were, you know, that McKinsey won were done through the procurement process. There was a totally separate, rigorous process. That's point number one. I think that's very. They were not. You know, the prime minister called someone up and said, "I think you should use McKinsey." There was a there was a very deliberate process that public procurement uses and. And I think that's 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 a very important part to me because it it actually it annoys me that that sort of you know notion that there would be a pro you know that that would actually work in our in for McKinsey but also for the government it's not that's and I think the statement makes that very clear. Second point I would make is that yes, the, there isn't a dispute that the fees increased for McKinsey, but if you put McKinsey in the context of overall. Uh, the overall consulting budget were it's 5%. And it, it took a, there's a fellow from, I think it's TV Ontario that actually put the chart. I don't know if you've seen it, Peter. It's well worth looking at, look at it. It's You need a magnifying glass to see McKinsey on that chart. So, you know, there was a significant increase, uh, which other firms, Accenture, I'm go through the list here of the, of the different players, uh, Deloitte, uh, uh, others were, we're doing. So there was, I, I think the question is more around, you know, the, the you know, the, the government using consultants. That's, I think, an interesting discussion to, to have. I have a view on that too, which I'm happy to jump into. But oh. I think the notion that there was some special nefarious relationship between the, you know, the liberal government and McKinsey, I think it's just wrong. It's it's not, it's not the facts don't corroborate. It. And that's why I think McKinsey in the statement is looking forward to being in that, if there is a committee, to be there to talk about it. Um, so that's the first part. And I might even add myself, when I was the ambassador, one of the things we worked on was we had to build a PPE supply chain for Canada, if you recall. And at one point, 93% of the PPE for Canada was coming from China. That was It was a huge effort to build that. The people I were dealing with was was, was uh, Minister Anand and, and the procurement people who were fantastic. But there was a consultant also there from Deloitte. Uh, I don't know how much they were, but they were very helpful because this was a highly unusual situation. It was a mass effort to be able to set this up. So there was a consultant that was there helping uh, in, in the process, right, that, that, that was there. So I, I just want to make, you know, I, I – I, I, you know, in – McKinsey tends to be quiet they don't say a lot I don't we don't but then this one it I'm it, it upsets me because I think it's it's egregious I think it's bad journalism you know I think about you you've spoken in the past about about good journal I think people should do their homework and not and not pick the pieces that they want to to tell a story and that's what I that's personal that's emotionally how I uh, what I feel here uh, is the case well, So again all contracts done uh according to due process, they weren't handed out to me. They had they had to go through a rigorous process and then put it in context. I I think the more fundamental questions I mentioned is around, okay. there was there's been a lot of expenditure on consultants. The other thing I might add, I just want to make clear from a personal point of view, the first, uh, you know, party that I got involved when I started doing some things in public service was actually the conservative party was Jim Flaherty. God rest his soul. I loved working with him. He was fantastic. I worked on Stephen Harper's, you know, there was a commission looking at the efficiency and effectiveness of the public sector under, you know, this is, I was the, McKinsey, Mr. McKinsey was working with the, you know, yeah, I don't, there wasn't much work, but that, that wasn't what I was doing the work for. It was nothing to do with where it is. So I, I just, I, it, it, I just think we have to put, make sure that people understand where, where the background is and, and where it is. And I and I think, you know, let, you know, let McKinsey talk about this. But the other thing I'd mentioned too, is a lot of that ballooning was since I left McKinsey. So maybe I didn't do a very good job. I don't know when I look at what, what other uh, firms are doing or so forth. That was post, a lot of that was post uh, post my time. But, if but that's that's my, sorry for, for rambling on, but I, I that's right. my view.
0: Well, one assumes that if there is a committee and they do investigate and they do report the the some of the things you're saying will will come out in that report. Yeah. Uh, if you're asked, would you uh, appear before the committee?
1: I would. I would. I'm not I have no. I think again, this is you know I don't you know again in the media it's kind of McKinsey Dominic Barton. I'm I'm ha- I'm proud of of uh, having worked at McKinsey, having led at McKinsey. So I will you know I'm very happy to do that. I think the the key people are obviously the people. Who have worked you know on the project projects led it and so forth uh because i you know again i had nothing to do with any of those those pieces but I'm, I'm i'm very happy i'm very happy to be you know open and transparent and tell my view about about where things are
0: let me um let me back up a bit time wise to when you were that mckinsey um part of that time um is, is currently being looked at in not a nice light by a lot of uh, uh, different organizations. Um, it's now the subject of controversy in several countries around the world and the subject of intense scrutiny in the U.S., Europe, and Canada. Um, McKinsey paid a $600 million fine. Obviously, I'm reading here, but I just want to refer to my notes on this. McKinsey paid a $600 million fine to attorneys general in the U.S., and apologize for its role in the opioid epidemic. To what extent do you feel the McKinseys work contributed to an epidemic which is still bringing misery and fresh deaths to families every day in Canada and around the world?
1: Yeah, I, as I said on that, the on, on the opium the opi- the opioid crisis. I think there there are things that I'm not proud of, and I feel very sorry for the impact that that. What the opioid crisis had I, I also think um it's important to be clear about what it is that mckinsey did and didn't do it's a uh, mckinsey gets uh thrown under the bus for a lot of different uh, things that are out there i think we you know in retrospect uh you know working for the the, the sackler organization checking what, what is it that we're working on is this an organization even if we believe that the work we're doing is good it's in an organization where challenging things were occurred we should be asking ourselves questions on that i think there's so i think there's lessons to be learned and i feel badly about that and you know as a firm we have made mistakes uh, but i'm also incredibly proud of the work that's been done on many fronts including during the COVID crisis helping many countries uh, be able to uh, get get through that what we've done on education what we've done on diversity um so it you know i think you're also referring to to the to the book uh, done by the two new york's times reporters i think again it's not it's not a it's not a balanced book um and there are some things that again we can we can learn from but this is a if you recall this is a firm that has th- there's no mandate that people have to work with mckinsey it's not like accounting it's a choice, and it's a firm that charges pretty high fees in terms of where it is. And so the only way, basically, that McKinsey survives is through the impact of its work. Uh, I remember this. When I was there, eight out of the ten clients that uh, that that were developed in McKinsey came through reference. This, this, this firm has impact. You should work with them. They cost a lot of money, but they have... They have impact, so it's not a. And it's you know the the firm continues to grow. It's all. It has to be based on the impact of the work that it's having, or it can't continue uh, to move to move forward on that. So what do you? I I just wouldn't.
0: What do you say to people who say, "Look, McKinsey worked on the opioid file, and they've they've paid the price for that." Um, they worked on uh, a file involving the, some of the tobacco companies. They've worked with the Saudis. And some of these people raised the question, well, you know, who wouldn't they work for if they would have taken those kind of contracts? How do you think respond to
1: I who do you say well, no I think to that or who
0: would McKinsey yeah. have said no to over the
1: years? Well, there there is a, a, a risk process. And I don't want to – I think, again, that's one of these questions. I want to be careful about talking about people. If you could imagine, right, Peter said, well, we didn't work with X, Y, or Z. But I can tell you there's a there's a lot of companies that McKinsey uh, didn't work for and doesn't work for. And there are a lot of companies that McKinsey stopped working for because we were concerned about the impact. We And I remember being involved in several – in Asia, where in fact one client was, was in South Korea, was so upset, said, you know, you can't fire us. We can fire you. And by the way, if you do leave, we'll see to it. You don't work here anymore. And our view is then we're, we're out. So there there are many instances of, of that. We don't publish that. It's not a very, you know, effective way of, of um, <laughs> running an organization, but it's done. And I can tell you, I saw it. Uh, I've seen it. I've seen it in Canada when I was a young associate, you know, we, we had, it was, you know, not, not a very significant office. I think there were probably 40 or 50 people. It wasn't very busy. So a lot of our people had been sent to Scandinavia and other parts of the world. We had one client who was very keen on working with us. And there was a view amongst the partner team that we weren't having impact. So we stopped working and that meant, and it meant there was nothing for people to do. They were, they were shipped overseas. So, there's a rigor uh, to that. It doesn't mean we get it right. The processes are always there, but we do it. And then you know, if you talk about Saudi, I think you want to be careful about who, who else does work. And there's a lot of people that do work in Saudi. I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a, so let's just be thoughtful about, about that dimension when we, we go through it. There's a lot of financial institutions, pretty well every consulting firm, you know, again, it's what you work on. And how you work it. I'm very proud of the work we've done on diversity in Saudi, uh, and there's things that you do not work on, if you, if you know what I mean. That's a so so. I think I think you know the, there. First of all, have been very clear choices that have been made about not doing things. Uh, there's a there's a rigorous process that the firm goes through. I think it's got even more rigorous, uh, given you know. What's happened um, in in the in the last while, which is good, um, but I also think it's important to understand where where it is that we work. You know, right now, let's say we go back to the China one, saying, you know, working, we we were involved. I was involved in helping uh, one of the Chinese banks IPO. That was in two thousand and four. I'm I'm proud of that work that we did. Now would we do that work today? If you do, probably, it's a different set of conditions, right, in terms of of where we work. So I think we should just be thoughtful about about that context as well. I still keep I have a Globe and Mail from I think it's two thousand and four, where it's it's about China and how this is going to be the new frontier for all of you know. It's a, and I and it's looking at it today, you kind of go, wow, that how could we? But that's let's remember, you know. Um, let's remember that, that type of thing. So, um, I, I believe McKinsey has very good processes. I think McKinsey will learn. And I think at the end of the day, it's a, there's a test, right? About whether people will pay for the impact and the work that that McKinsey does. And if they don't, then McKinsey will have a very difficult time, but that's not the case. If you, if you just look at the how, how the firm seems to be doing. I'm not involved, you know what I mean, I, but I'm, I just look at where it is. Um,
0: just one question left. We've only got a couple of minutes, but uh, it, it's funny listening to you talk about that Globe and Mail headline from the early 2000s. One of the headlines in the New York Times today is China's authoritarian government has gotten in the way of the country's growth. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, come full circle in yeah. a way, right? Um, yeah. Here's the here's the 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 last question, and it's on the this consultancy issue, and you've raised it a couple of times, and, and I did as well. Uh, this question about there's been such significant growth, has it been warranted, and uh, in overall consultancy use by governments, and not just in Canada, but in many parts of the world, and is it basically eliminating that uh, public sector role of the bureaucracy, um, civil servants who, you know, spend their life trying to uh, help and advise and carry out, um, um, you know, a direction uh, for a government that has set the direction. Um, is there that danger that what we've witnessed is the erosion of the public service?
1: Um, I... I uh I worry about the two things, but I don't think they necessarily are related, if I could say that. I think that if you look at the consulting industry, it's boomed. Every private sector is using way more consultants today than they did 10 years ago. There's, it's a, it's a, one of the highest growth industries in the world, right, and has been for a long period of time uh, because there's just, I, I personally think it's because there are so many changes that are underway where there may not be playbooks for how you do it. You need capacity because people are not sitting on their behinds doing nothing. They're busy. You need extra capacity to be able to, to do things. So it's not just about government to consult. This is about society. There are, there are, whether you like consultants or not, there are, there is, uh, there has been a very significant increase in demand and it continues. Um, and again, if I look at we could talk about this Accenture, look at what De, I think it's Deloitte that's now thinking about splitting up so they can have a consult, you know, a dedicated consulting practice. So it's a, this is a private sector, public sector, and actually civil society factor. There are more consultants working in civil society as well. That's point point one, and I think there's very clear evidence of that in, in the in the growth rates and scale, just hundreds of billions of dollars. I think on the public service side, it's I think there's there have been there's been a huge amount that is going on in the last, particularly the last five years in every government around the world, particularly in Canada. So the volume of the there's a volume of work part of it uh, and then there's an expertise part of it. Uh, and so, you if you know, and, and I think the at least the consulting at know McKinsey does is not about policy. It's about execution. It's helping get something especially in government that the government wants to actually get done as opposed to let's come up with some new idea uh of, of how to do this it it, it has to be, and, and by the way the people hiring the consultants are typically public servants it's not i don't think it's a minister that's i've never come across that i think it's it's a department that says we need this help but but the part that i guess so what makes me think about it is that we need to you know, I think make sure that we develop ex- deeper expertise in the public service to be able to do execution. You've, we've heard about some of the backlogs going on on passports and uh, immigration. You know, that, that's a that's a that's a logistics issue, right? That there's and pe- there's people who know how to. That's all they do all day is think about processes. It could have been from the automotive industry, it could be because you worked with Federal Express, it could be whatever, but you've got a deep expertise in doing those types of processes and, and you want to tap into the best of that to bring it in. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't also have some of that capacity in the public sector. So I, I think this, I think, it raises the question of where, where do we want to have the expertise in-house uh, versus outside? Um you think about some of the technology changes that are underway and how far, how the scale of what that that shift has been and then look at what a bank spends on consultants for technology It's a huge amount of money, you know what I mean because you do, you don't necessarily have that capability that doesn't mean you shouldn't build some depth so I, I think there's a question around maybe the what we, You know, what level of expertise do we have to have in government? Maybe it isn't in every department, but it can be used cutting across departments. What's the training and development that we provide our people uh, to be able to um, do do what what we want to do? How do we uh, how do we prioritize um, what it is of what we're doing? And I'm obviously biased here, Peter, but I, I think one thing that consultants do is bring uh, out outside outside ideas, unorthodox views that can help push things uh, put, push things forward. Um, and I, what I say with that is, I I actually learned a lot about leadership and management by being in the public service too. I think I would have been a better consultant if I'd spent time earlier on in my career in the public because there's just different. You know, you have a far broader set of objectives to in your objective function than one or two in a private sector company. You have a different set of stakeholders and those things could be helpful. So I, the, I, I think, again, one, let's just put this in context with what's happening in the world with advisory work. This isn't this isn't a government that's gone crazy or, you know, it, 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 this, this is this is happening worldwide in every sector. Uh, it's, it's happening in the defense sector. It's uh, so, um, you know. I, I think we just got to make sure we put that in in context. And then I think there are some good questions to ask too about what can we learn from this, what could we do more in house versus versus uh, versus outside. Um, but the idea that having more consultants means you're doing something wrong, but as a sort of a, a view, I think is I would challenge that.
0: Well, we're uh, we're going to leave it at that uh, for, for this day, but as you said, there are, there are good questions to ask in, in terms of the follow-up on this, and uh, perhaps we'll get a chance to do that on another day. But you've been uh, terrific with your time, uh, and we appreciate it very much, Dominic Barton, joining us from London. You take care. Thank you, Peter. Dominic Barton, Canada's former ambassador to China during the Two Michaels episode, and one of the leading international business figures, uh, now with Rio Tinto, based in London, the global mining firm, and formerly the global managing partner of McKinsey, the um, consulting agency. So there you go. Our, uh, our special interview launching this week's uh, programming uh, with Dominic Barton. I hope you found it interesting. There's a lot to snack on there in terms of the different things he had to say. And uh, I hope you do just that. Uh, coming up this week, tomorrow, of course, uh, we will uh, take a look at the situation in Ukraine with Brian Stewart in his regular Tuesday commentary. Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce. And uh, Thursday, your turn and the Random Ranter. Friday uh, is Good Talk with Chantal and Bruce. If you have a thought, something you want to say on the interview today, drop a line to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'll include it, uh, perhaps at least some of it, uh, on your turn this coming Thursday. That's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.